had heightened to her period had started. The newspapers reported that her name was Anne Holmes, after her maternal grandmother, who died from sepsis and pneumonia a week before Anne was born. Anne and her mother, fifteen at Anne's birth, had lived with Anne's grandfather, a long-haul trucker, a man with complicated gambling debts, in a series of rental homes. The newspapers, though, did not uncover that her mother's boyfriend, a methamphetamine addict, had raped Anne opportunistically beginning when she was fourteen. Afterward, he would lie beside her with an expression of antic, contorted suffering, etching his hairless, long face. Sometimes he cried or apologized, but more often he threatened to kill her. When Anne was fifteen, she took a driver's education class, which she missed only once, on a Friday afternoon, in order to have an abortion. Eight months later, she expelled her second fetus into the toilet at a mini-mart on the heels of a bout with nausea. On her sixteenth birthday, she bought a two-door car, dented or crumpled in more than one panel, for three hundred and fifty dollars, earned foraging for truffles and chanterelles. The next morning, she drove away. Anne was diminutive, sparrow-boned, and when she covered her head with her sweatshirt hood, it was easy to mistake her for a boy of twelve, fair-skinned and dreamy. She often wheezed asthmatically, sneezed feebly, blew her nose, and coughed against her fist or palm. On most mornings her jeans were wet with the rain or dew transferred from the fronds of ferns, and her hands looked pink and raw. She smelled of wood smoke, leaves, and rank clothes, and had lived for a month in the North Fork campground in a canvas tent by the river. Others living there told reporters that she'd rigged up a plastic tarp with twine and often sat under it against a log, reading by firelight. Most described her as silent and subdued, though not unpleasant or inspiring unease, not threatening in her estrangement. Those who saw her in the woods that fall, other mushroom gatherers mostly, but also several elk and deer hunters, and once a Stinson Company timber cruiser, were struck by her inconsequence and by the wariness of her eyes in shadow underneath the drawn hood. A mushroom picker named Carolyn Greer, who lived in a van in the North Fork campground, claimed that on an evening in mid-October she had eaten dinner with Ann Holmes, sharing soup, bread, and canned peaches, and speaking with her of present matters, but never of themselves, their histories. Ann had not had much to say. Mostly she stirred her soup pot, listened and stared at the flames of the fire. She did indicate a concern for her car, whose transmission no longer allowed her to shift gears or to travel anywhere. The car's battery had petered out, and its windshield and windows appeared permanently clouded with an opaque, viscous vapor. It sat beside her canvas tent, gathering fallen cedar needles, both seats loaded with plastic bags, paper sacks, and cardboard boxes stuffed with her belongings. Carolyn didn't tell the bishop's representative that while the soup was simmering, they got high together. Primarily, it was nobody's business. Furthermore, it implicated her, too. Carolyn indulged in pot regularly. It surprised her that Anne, after a few tokes, did not become effusive and talkative like most stoned people around a campfire. Instead, she became even more reserved, more hermetic and taciturn. Her face disappeared inside the hood of her sweatshirt. She spoke when spoken to, terse but polite, and poked incessantly at the wood coals. Her only subject was her dead car. 
Stranded, Anne had resorted to the county bus, which stopped at a convenience store a half-mile from the campground, and dropped her in front of the market time in North Fork for 85 cents one way. She paid, the county driver reported, with exact change, sometimes using pennies, and replied in kind when he greeted her. Once he commented on the mushrooms in her bucket, on their number, size, and golden hue, and she gave him some, loosely wrapped in newspaper she found at the back of the bus. On the highway, she slept with her head against the window. Frequently she read from a paperback book he eventually discerned was a catechism. When she got off in town, she said thank you or goodbye, her hood still drawn around her face. A half-dozen times, she accepted a ride from a mushroom and brush picker named Stephen Mossberger, who wore a dense beard, Coke bottle glasses, and a wool cap pulled low on his temples. Seeing her carrying her bucket of chanterelles and walking the road one afternoon, Mossberger rolled down the window of his pickup, explained that he lived in the campground as she did, that he picked mushrooms just like her, then asked if she wanted a lift. Anne refused him without a front. No thanks, she said. I'm okay. The next time he saw her, in late October, he pulled over at dusk in a modest rain, and she accepted without hesitating. When he leaned across to push ajar the door, she got in, smelling of wet clothes and mushrooms, set the bucket of chanterelles on her lap, and said, It's a little wet out. Where are you from? Mossberger asked. Down in Oregon, not far from the coast. What's your name? She gave him her first. He told her his full name. He put his hand out to shake hers, and she slipped her hand into his. He wanted to believe afterward that this moment was freighted with spiritual meaning, that in taking her hand, he felt the hand of God, and he described it that way to the diocesan committee and to the bishop's representative, a hand that was more than other hands, he said, connecting him with something deeper than his own life. But, in fact, he understood privately. What he felt was probably little more than the small thrill a man gets from shaking hands with a woman. In North Fork, Anne sold her mushrooms to Bob Frame, a mechanic who worked on logging equipment and ran his mushroom business on the side. Garrulous and jocular most of the time, he spoke with an instinctive brevity and disdain to the first journalist who entreated him. The girl's mushrooms, Frame said, were always meticulously field cleaned and her bucket contained few culls. Only once on an evening of bitter rain did she drink the coffee he kept about as a gratuity for his pickers. For a few minutes she sat by the electric heater, sipping from a styrofoam cup, watching as he layered mushrooms in newspaper and weighed the day's take on a scale. It seemed to him, working close to her, that she hadn't bathed or laundered her clothing in a long time, maybe weeks. He did recall that she kept her pay in a leather pouch worn around her neck, not in the pocket of her jeans. Her shoes, he noted, were well-worn, the sole of one of them separating from the upper, so that her damp wool sock showed through. Even in his shed, she wore her sweatshirt hood and kept her hands in her sweatshirt pockets. Frame didn't tell the journalist that she could give no social security number when he requested one for his records. He'd paid her cash and noted nothing in his books of recompense made to an Ann Holmes, and because of that small, worrisome omission, he was angry with himself for having said anything about Ann Holmes at all. He spoke to no more journalists afterward, and proclaimed in town that the media circus perpetually surrounding the visionary was a spectacle he couldn't participate in and still live with himself. In truth, it was the specter of an IRS audit that made him afraid to speak of her, 
though he did tell his wife, swearing her to secrecy, that once when the girl freed her pouch from her sweatshirt, she also inadvertently brought forth a necklace bearing a crucifix, which Bob said glowed a brilliant gold. From frame shed, Anne carried her bucket to market time and bought a few things each evening. One checker recalled her proclivity for sugar wafers, small cartons of chocolate milk, deli burritos, and starbursts. No one else remembered very much, except that she always wore her hood and counted her returned change. She asked for the key to the storeroom toilet more often than other customers, and used the dish soap in the utility sink to wash her hands afterward. Occasionally, she stuffed pennies in the cans for the injured loggers fund. In early November, while foraging for chanterelles, two girls from North Fork came across Ann Holmes in the woods east of town. They were middle school girls, seventh graders, who had employed the ruse of mushrooming all fall to smoke pot in the woods after school. Besides their mushroom buckets and pocket knives, they brought along a bag of marijuana, a small pipe, and matches. Deeply concerned about getting caught, careful girls who giggled for long stretches after smoking even a little pot, they were mindful of the need for chewing gum, eye drops, and doses of cheap perfume. They were also ravenous, paranoid, and startled by noises in the forest. The singing of a bird could worry them. A plane overhead, a truck on a distant road, froze them in their tracks, wide-eyed. They'd been stoned that afternoon for a half hour and were finding mushrooms here and there, giggling in their usual manner, when they saw Anne Holmes perched on a log, watching them with her hands in her pockets and her sweatshirt hood drawn around her cheeks so that her face lay in shadow. At first they thought she was a boy of their own age, an unfamiliar boy not from their town, and even when they came close enough to see that her bucket was brimming with chanterelles, neither was certain that she wasn't a boy, though they inspected her face closely. Both were conscious of being stoned, and wondered if it was observable somehow, if their behavior gave them away. They exerted themselves to act normal. Whoa, said one. You scored. I should have brought along another bucket. Amazing. Ass-kicking. Have you ever noticed that bucket rhymes with bucket? Crystal, excuse me. God, Crystal, I'm sure it rhymes. God, Crystal, I'm sure. They giggled now in a truncated manner, trying to stop themselves. They both put hands over their mouths in an effort to hold in laughter. Anne loosened her sweatshirt drawstring, pushed the hood away from her face, and ran her fingers through her hair. Her hair was short, the color of old straw matted to her head, unkempt. The others could see now that Anne was a girl, which was not as good as a strange boy in the woods to talk about at school. Are you, like, from where? one asked. I'm from the campground. You were, like, born there? They laughed again, covering their mouths. One of them nearly fell over. You guys are baked, Anne said. We're not baked. We're totally hammered. I'm, like, fried. Totally. I'm, like, ripped. Me too. They sat cross-legged on the forest floor. The one named Crystal pulled out a deck of cards. The other produced the bag of marijuana. Let's get bait, she suggested. Maybe a little, Anne replied. They smoked dope, played crazy eights, ate a rope of red licorice, some dots, and a box of red hots. Anne asked if they believed in Jesus. Uh-oh, said one. Are you a Jesus freak? I just wonder if you believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus eats Reese's Pieces, 
Jesus is the reason for the season. They covered their mouths another time. Jesus saves, but Moses invests. That's why the Jews are all rolling in money. They own Hollywood. Totally. I have to go home. What time is it? It's time to go. We need some more shrooms. We need magic shrooms. I'd rather do shrooms than get baked, wouldn't you? I quit doing shrooms, said Anne. She gave them each enough chanterelles to help them dupe their parents. God bless, she said. God loves you. Okay, whatever. He does. At school the next day, they told certain people about the Jesus freak in the forest. They said she was probably a lesbian. God, what a weirdo, totally. Dice for Jesus or something. God bless, Jesus saves. Freak out. Three weeks later, they saw her picture in the paper, on the front page beside a long article. It's that freak from the woods, said Crystal. It's totally her. I can't believe it. She got too stoned and hallucinated or something. That little pothead lesbian bitch. I bet she makes money on this. They told people not to believe in her. That bitch didn't see the Virgin Mary. She was on an acid trip. Maybe she hallucinated a Madonna video. Yeah, like a virgin. No, like a sturgeon. Weird Al Yankovic, I think sucks. So what are you doing after school today? I'm totally, completely tired for some reason. This freaks me out. Me too. I'm totally freaked. That bitch, what a les. She didn't see anything. The first apparition on November 10th at three in the afternoon, in the wake of Anne's two disturbing dreams, which she characterized afterward not as dreams, but as pregnant celestial visitations, occurred while Anne cleaned a mushroom. She had taken a bandana from her jeans pocket, folded it into a sanitary pad, and nestled it into her panties. Then climbing over a steep hill, she'd entered a thicket of salal, an Oregon grape, not conducive to mushroom picking. This she passed through in fifteen minutes, before coming to a sea of moss. The forest here had a dank smell. There were chanterelles, but few in number. She picked them with no particular urgency. The cold she felt coming made her feel listless, and her bucket was nearly full. She was brushing dirt from the gills of a mushroom when she noticed a strange light in the forest. Later, she described it as a ball of light hovering silently between two trees, also as a bright floating orb about the size of a basketball. It was lit from inside, not from without, not like a mirror, jewel, or prism, but more like a halogen light bulb. It didn't waver or wax and wane like a candle, and appeared like a helium balloon, free of gravity, aloft and attached to nothing. A nimbus surrounded it like fog or gauze. She thought that perhaps it revolved in place like a small planet or a moon.